we actually don't trust these poor people to do the right thing. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Pat Thompson, who is Professor of Education in the School of Education at the University of Nottingham. Pat's research is centred primarily on how schools might change to become more engaging and meaningful for children and young people. And Pat researches the arts, creativity and other kinds of experimental approaches in school and community settings, including galleries and museums. This is a really exciting episode for me for two reasons, because we're going to talk about Pat's amazing book. Pat runs the amazing academic blog, Patter. I've got multiple neurodiverse traits. I've got ADHD, dyslexia and dyspraxia. And I found out about these traits when I was two years into my PhD. My legendary supervisor, Emma Jackson, spotted it. I had to teach myself to write again. Well, not again. I had to teach myself to write because I just had got to this level and didn't know how to write. Pat's blog, I think, is one of the top three reasons why I'm now at the end of my PhD. So just wanted to start off by saying Pat is an absolute legend. And if you're ever struggling with writing, you must, must, must sign up for her blog. So we'll put the blog in the episode notes. But yes, Pat, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about your latest book, School Scandals, Blowing the Whistle on the Corruption of Our Education System. In this book, you have documented 3,800 examples Mm -hmm. of bad practice within the school system that run to the heart of government. This book, me and Tiso, our minds have been blown by it because it's so infuriating, because it's just so detailed and just shows you just so much corruption at the heart of our education system. And it's pretty... It's pretty heartbreaking, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have a pretty kind of loose definition of corruption. You know, there's the kind of official definitions of corruption, which are, you know, using public goods and particularly public money, but public goods for private benefit, either for yourself or for for your mates or for people who are part of your kind of social group more broadly. Um, But... I guess I've gone back to a very old definition of corruption and it's actually one which comes from kind of Greek philosophy. It came through um, Christianity and through other religions as well, which actually talks about corrupted states. Um, In other words, there's a kind of state of the state of the demos where people don't benefit from it. And so the state is itself is seen as a kind of having a a public value and ought to be of value to its public or publics. And so there's a kind of sense in which it's sick in some way and it has practices which have become corrupted. You know, they don't work in the interests of everybody anymore. And I guess that's an idea which was taken up by loads of people, you know, Machiavelli all the way through to Marx, really. Um, You know, and you can see Marx absolutely is talking about capitalism as a kind of organisation of society which 
benefits very few at the expense um, of most people, um, including not only in terms of exploitation of their labour, but also, you know, they die also. <laughs> you know, they die in large numbers early um, from all kinds of things that the, the people who are benefiting don't die from. I think it's that kind of version of corruption that I also wanted to talk about as well as the more obvious, you know, game playing and, yeah, just making loads of money out of the taxpayer's purse. It's interesting, the idea when you start speaking of corruption, how this definition changes over time, but also how the modern sense of definition of corruption absorbs a state of any kind of wrongdoing and it individualizes corruption. So for things to be okay, we always exercise the person. So it's a few bad apples are the reason that things are corrupt and the system always remains in place. Yeah, I mean, I think a really good example of that is money lending. It's my favourite example. For people that have been brought up in Christianity, which not everybody has the story of moneylenders in the temple. You know, Jesus came in and was very cross that they were doing this terrible thing that was seen as being really corrupt to actually make money out of lending money to other people. And if you think, you know, where we are now, and we came through a long process where lending money became more acceptable in society. But when Shakespeare was writing, of course, we still had that view of usury and it was highly racialised. I think that's the other thing, of course, is that it was, you know, if you think about Shy, the figure of Shylock in The Merchant of Venice, you know, money lending is tied up ways of othering people as well. It was seen as so sort of bad. A couple of centuries ago, money lending became kind of acceptable and it was regulated by the state. So you could only charge, a certain, you know, an interest rate, an acceptable interest rate was set. And so the state became kind of, in a, you know, legalised, but also became a kind of mediator in a new industry, a new form of, you know, capitalism. And this is part of, you know, the formation of capitalism, consolidation of capitalism, obviously. And, you know, but we still have this kind of notion of individual naughty people who are loan sharks, and yet we've got, you know, the city, and it's a, which is a global kind of phenomena, the, the finance industry and the, the kind of making money on stocks and futures trading and all the rest of it, which is all kind of aligned to practices associated with borrowing and lending and speculating against borrowing and lending, which is institutionalised, you know, and it is, it's not only the state, it's kind of global networks of, of corporate businesses as well, which rely on the state in order to enable it to do its business. And it's kind of, I always think Baudrillard actually kind of had it right about this stuff, you know, when he sort of says, you know, we have Disneyland, so we can't see the kind of a theme park that is actually modern politics. And, you know, it seems to me we have the loan shark. So most of the time we don't actually focus on the kind of corruption that actually exists in that's institutionalised in the kind of finance industries, which, you know, just make enormous profit off of, um, from borrowing and lending in various kinds of ways. And I think that's a, a pretty good example of what you're talking about. We've gone from this sort of individual a view of corruption which was either about individual behaviour, group behaviour or the state, and it's become progressively individualised but also regulated by the state in such a way that its institutionalisation becomes hidden and obscured. The state level of corruption like in terms of interest is symbiotic, right? So it's enough to keep it alive. 
because it knows it needs to keep people. But a loan shark, they would say it's parasitic. It, eventually, it's going to kill that person to pay back those those that those crazy interest rates. So it tends to see yeah. it individualizes the kind of lower class or racialized person as a parasite, which kind of ties into themes of immigration and migration. You're you're a burden to society. Whereas the state is symbiotic, it's going to hurt yeah, you. Yeah, and not you're, you're also not necessarily going to see it coming, are there? Yeah, yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, sort of setting. I'm really, I'm so glad, Pat, that you got us to set that context of um, corruption because I sort of went straight in with my usual excited self um, on some of these topics. But it is good to sort of get more description about some of the things we're talking about in the broader context. And with that in mind, it would be really good to talk to our listeners about the types of schools that you talk about um, in the book because we do. We're very fortunate to have an international audience on, for Surviving Society, but it would be good to sort of contextualise the UK and the school systems. I know you've got that glossary. I mean, that glossary itself that you put together at the beginning, I don't think half the population under- know, know that yeah, glossary. Um, I mean, I think um, in the book I mainly talk about England and I talk about other some other school systems that are like what happens in England. So... There's a little bit about Sweden in there, something, some stuff about some American states. There's, but and because this sort of represents almost the zenith in, in England of a particular view of how an education system ought to be run, I guess in, in its own terms, it's a more successful, you know, scare quotes, successful materialisation or material uh, instance of a view of what the new public service actually looks like, what the new public sector looks like, you know, and the new public sector is one where the government makes policy decisions. It's civil service, as it's called in, in the UK, but can be called the public service in other parts of the world, you know, where that layer becomes responsible for commissioning actual services that are kind of, and here we get the word delivered, you know, the, the other kind of another bit of the discourse delivery to the public. And, you know, the theory is, of course, that anybody can deliver a service to the public. You know, it doesn't have to be done by the, the public service. It can be done by anybody. And in fact, it's better if it's done by anybody, because then we can set up efficient and markets are, are going to produce a much better quality service. And, you know, so you get the whole kind of ethos of competition, contractualization, marketization, which sit around the kind of public services. So that's the kind of basic philosophy of governing, I think, that has been taken in England. First of all, you know, played out in some of the public infrastructure. So, you know, you can see it in the water supply and the electricity supply and the transport system, you know, so they did all that stuff first. A long time ago, I came as a tourist. It was during the Thatcher years. I came as a tourist um, and went to the, I wasn't as a tourist, I came on a kind of conference. I went to the Lake District and somebody told me I was I was sitting on, you know, the name of the company's kind of water supply and I'm kind of looking at the lakes and this person telling me about this company which controls the lakes and, and you know, at that time this wasn't a philosophy which was particularly well known in Australia at this level and just thinking, you know, what's going on here? How can you privatise a lake in the middle of the Lakes District? It's that process which has been applied to schooling. So while we don't have for-profit schools in England, as there are in Sweden and as there are in 
um, some bits of the United States, you know, we do have a kind of very now a very marketized system. And so what that means is that instead of having, you know, a couple of different types of schools, we went from, you know, a school system which was largely comprehensive schools. I mean, we moved post-war from um, secondary modern schools to grammar school and grammar system on the grounds that having two types of schools wasn't a good thing and it produced inequity and secondary modern schools tended to have, surprise, surprise, a whole lot of kids, you know, a particular mix of class, race, you know, students within them. We move from that to this kind of ideal, I guess, of, uh, you know, the comprehensive school was going to be the one system. And of, and of course, I mean, you know, but there was a rump of grammar schools that still hung on around the country. Some places refused to get rid of the grammar schools. Sorry to cut you, Pat, but the grammar schools, just to be clear, they're selective based on taking Absolutely, an exam. an exam at the end of primary school get this kind of idea that still sits in the system, even the intensivisation of one school system which caters for all children regardless of who they are, we still get and epitomised in the grammar school but also still at work in the comprehensive schools, we get this idea that, you know, you, you get through the school system on merit. Uh, and of course, you know, there's a, a huge amount of sociology that's that's done in the 60s and 70s showing that th this is not the case. I mean, there is the famous kind of Michael Young book about meritocracy in France. We get Bourdieu and making the same kind of arguments that, you know, this is not based on merit at all. This is based on um, a kind of fairly obscure set of practices which sort and select kids out according to particular criteria and those and those qualities and practices and you know stuff that people bring with them what Bourdieu would call you know capitals are what's attached to particular groups of people and not everybody so the whole idea of a of the comprehensive system as being you know a, a really good thing um was was being unpicked at the time you know that wasn't necessarily all it was cracked up to be but what happened, of course, particularly, you know, with, I guess, a lot of critiques of what was seen as kind of cranky approaches to teaching, you know, so you get the kind of critiques of what are called progressivism in schooling, you know, which, which, which in part were about undoing the kind of knowledge capitals and cultural capitals and social capitals that had previously dominated the system. You know, you get a real kind of critique of progressivism and you get a kind of rolling into the Thatcher period of these new ideas of governing combined with old ideas about what good schooling actually looks like. Let's go back to the kind of grammar school model, which we did so well on, and we can point to some working class kids who were sorted and selected through the system. You get this kind of, you get the first move in Thatcher of setting up some schools that are kind of like quasi-private schools. And that's really the strategy is you set up what's what's called a quasi-market within the, the public sector where you get, so we had, you know, the proper so-called um, public schools, who of course not public school, not public at all anymore, but we get the independent or private schools, fee-paying schools, and then you're going to get a bunch of state schools that had the same kinds of autonomies to, although they were going to be, they were funded by the state, they weren't going to have to answer to the local authority. 
And so you've got those schools kind of coming in. And that was, you know, the really big move in the kind of Thatcher period. And then they set up Gail devolution so that schools started to manage themselves, which meant in theory they could start to compete with each other. You also bring in, in the name of equity, actually, you bring in um, national testing, um, national league tabling. And, and of course, it is the case that if you're concerned about equity, you do need to know where everybody is. You can't, you can't, you know, you do have to do some kind of measurement of some description if you want to make sure that it's not particular groups of kids who are missing out. So there's a kind of difficult point here for people who are concerned with justice. But, you know, this kind of process of introducing more autonomy, more competition, and then more variety in the school system goes on. And it doesn't go on in a nice, neat kind of stream. And by the time, you know, New Labour, the, the, the third way is, is in the system, they're really concerned about the bunch of, a bunch of schools who are, are really struggling. Um, they're often in inner cities. They're often serving communities that are really poor. Often they're... Um, their schools that serve concentrations of people from particular kind of ethnic or racial kind of heritages. I mean, they're generally people who are doing it pretty tough, you know, and having a hard time with unemployment, often on various kinds of wage benefits. The schools are often not that flash. They were, they're old Victorian buildings or they're schools that were kind of slapped up in the post-war period and they're crumbling and whatever. So they decide they want to do something about that, you know, New Labour, they, they decide they're going to invent these things called academies and they're going to have this, they're not going to be a huge number of them, but they're going to, in inner city areas, in these areas, you know, where, they, where the kids really aren't getting the benefits of schooling at all, um, or they are getting some, um, but comparatively they're just not benefiting from education in the way that other kids do in other locations. They So they decide they want to put in new buildings. They decide, for whatever reason, most of them they're going to close, reinvent with a new name. They're going to potentially change over staff. They're going to, you know, put more money and a lot more effort and scrutiny into trying to make these schools do better for the kids who most need their schools to do better. The academies program is born, you know, out of a kind of social justice set of reasons. But of course, what it does is some more variety into the system. The academy program grows very slowly. And so then we've got academies, we've got, you know, some specialist schools that have specialist curriculum offerings. We've got ordinary local authority schools, we've got grammars. So you can see there's beginning to be more variety of school type. And when the conservative coalition comes in, they just decide to take the brakes off and, you know, all hell breaks loose basically in the school system. They decide that actually they'd really like all the schools to be academies, um, and that local authorities have got no role at all except to be a kind of picking up the pieces service so they can look after special educational needs and they can look after kids who are excluded but really it would be better if every school was completely autonomous and ran like an independent private school so that's what they set about trying 
to get to happen and they invent some new schools. They invent looking at the US charter schools They and using the terminology from Sweden, they invent this thing, this free school, which is like a charter school, which has got even more autonomy. And by that, I mean they, they get inspected, but they don't have to follow the national curriculum and they can make a lot of their own decisions. They don't have to follow any agreements there might be about pay scales or you know, whatever, and that's a true generally across free schools or a type of academy. So, and then, of course, they discover that actually single, it's, you know, running a school system of, you know, thousands of independent schools is actually not, a, you actually can't do it. Actually, you do need something like local authorities. Um, so they start to reinvent a structure, really, a new structure is, is building and it's where clumps of academies come together in these kind of multi-academy trusts, they're called, which might have up to 40, 40 or so schools in them. A lot of them are actually still two, three, you know, six, seven schools, but some of them are very big. And the government would like to, the current government would like to see all schools in multi-academy trusts now because they need that kind of infrastructure in order schools you know are not little islands and you have to be enormously rich to actually operate as a as a single kind of school but that's where it's all moving and it's at the point now where i think three quarters of i suppose last time i looked which was a few months ago now about 75 percent of kids in a high school were being educated in, a, in an academy but only a quarter of them, if, if a primary school students are being educated in an academy. But it's it's a real it's a mixed system, and it's a it's a mess. Um, and it's you know in the book I kind of argue, and actually Stephen Ball, my colleague at the um, institute, he's or at UCL, he's also argued that we've gone back to a kind of situation which was the case at the end of the 19th century. And it was one in which, you know, Sydney Webb, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, the kind of Fabian socialists wrote a lot, and, and Sydney Webb in particular, wrote a lot about, got parliament really, to act on what he called the education muddle. And that's what it is again. It, it is a kind of muddle of various different kinds of, of schools. And one of my colleagues, Steve Courtney, tried to count the number of different kinds of schools that there were now, and I think he stopped at about 94 or 95, you know, there's the permutations that you can have within the system. And of course, this is seen as a, as a good thing. Ironically, most schools teach the same stuff. The kids wear uniforms. What strikes me as you're talking, it almost seems the system's working as intended. It has the idea of multiple types of schools. So that's in line with the neoliberal idea of choice and the free market. But also running kind of parallel to that is the idea that of the universalistic kind of enlightenment came a national idea, a national identity, a national curriculum, standardization, all these things that are part of modernity. So it almost seems it works as intended. And what kind of came into my mind after you kind of went through that long history is that at the end of it, you have all these kind of this academy. It almost sounds like the old school guilds that you used to have where you form guilds and corporations within because you can't survive by yourself. So you have guilds forming. Some guilds are better than others, right? The more powerful ones can come together and form a powerful guild and you still have these little ones on the side. So it almost seems like gone forward, but also gone back at the same time to a point where you have guilds. Like I can't 
can't believe you just through. You just did a summary <laughs> of the English education system, 1945 <laughs> to 2021. That oh. was literally that's so impressive. That was amazing. So thank you so much for doing that, Pat. Just following T's point as well, personally, I've had to come to terms with whilst we've been recording this podcast, is a lot of these structures, a lot of these state practices are doing what they intend them to do. So I sometimes come to looking at social justice and inequality thinking, oh my God, we need to tell the government, like, look what's happening, like it's going wrong. But I've had to just roll back, roll back, roll back and come to the realisation, this is what they want to do. Like, they don't want equity. They want there to be layers. They want multi-class. They want people to be higher up. They want people to be lower down. They don't want equity. Like, that's the point. Why we should be concerned about 75% of our high schoolers being in these schools or what are some concerns that we might have as people interested in social justice? Yeah, okay, so there's a few reasons. One of the things is that this system has been the change, you know, changing over a whole school system is extraordinarily expensive. So it's cost a huge amount of taxpayers' money to actually do this. You know, when we went from, you know, these very expensive schools in inner cities under New Labour that were costing three and four times as much as your average school, but on the other hand, they were in communities that have been very neglected and, you know, my view is, you know, well, they, they actually really deserved some investment, you know, and good good to get some good public infrastructure in a lot of those inner city um, areas. But it's just, it, and it, it more than costing in kind of startup costs, there's actually a whole lot of inbuilt costs into this kind of marketised system. So it, it allows for market failure. So that's the first thing. Um, you know, so some academies are actually not going to improve and they're going to need to be taken over or they're going to be closed. And we know already that a number of one of the types of schools that was invented was a thing called a studio school, which were is, is a bit like a, um, a secondary modern reimagined and updated. But it was about a kind of hands on practice, you know, learning, learning by through doing stuff, often with a view to thinking they might go off to you know, further ed or perhaps to something like uh, engineering. You've probably went through the science and technology colleges, which were another version that they had. But we know a lot of the free schools have actually closed. You know, I mean, so they start, They started up, they were pretty fly by night, um, some of them. They There was a huge investment made and then they collapsed. The kids had to go somewhere else. In some cases, some of those facilities are empty and still being paid for out of the public purse. So there's these kind of ongoing costs of what's called brokering and rebrokering, closing and reopening that weren't part of the system before. And we also don't really, because the local authorities have been kind of emasculated, there isn't really the capacity to plan in the same way anymore because a lot of new schools are being set up, you know, the new schools are being approved as part of a free school program rather than a local authority actually establishing a new school because they're building a new suburb. It's can they get free school to open there? Some local authorities are able still to establish new schools. So there's a new school just being planned in Nottingham, for example, um, because there's a new suburb coming up. But there are other places where the council might 
choose to and um, in consultation with the government or being told by the regional schools commissioner that what has to happen here is there'll be a free school. So there's a bunch of cost built into this academisation system, which is greater than the startup costs. And it also was made worse by the fact that a lot of the new buildings that have been built have been done through public finance initiatives. In other words, they've been part of the process of getting the private sector um, involved in building public buildings, but they actually own the public buildings for the for a period after they've been built. You know, if the government thinks it's is is hell bent on thinking we have to have a balanced budget, so therefore we can't actually invest in any public infrastructure. It's all too expensive. So what we'll do is we'll contract this out to a private contractor. And there's just some ridiculous cases now of the most extreme cases of, you know, people paying schools that are in PFI buildings, you know, having to pay maintenance costs on, you know, a tap or a bench or something so that it ends up costing hundreds of times more than it actually would um, if you bought it yourself. So, so one of the things I tried to do in the book was actually just say, you know, in as a as a market, this is actually pretty inefficient, and you know, wasting public money like this is actually not a really good thing, particularly when you claim to be, as the current government does, to be really good at managing money compared to its predecessors. And I think we can all see you know, in the pandemic, that, that how untrue that is. You know, I think the test and trace system here in the, in England is a really good example of a of a, an appalling amount of money that's been spent on, on a fairly ineffective test and trace system. As I understand it, the amount of money is more than the budget for primary education and the early years. The same time, you know, so that's a privatised kind of system. It's a mar privatised market system. On the other hand, we've got, you know, the rump of the public infrastructure, which is managing the vaccination program, which is of course steaming it and going really well, and managed at a kind of local level. And you know, you can sort of see, I think, the contrast between what a public infrastructure can do if it has to, and a really inefficient private infrastructure. And you know, I think the the system that we have now in schooling is one which is just just does cost more money to kind of set up. So on inefficiency and waste grounds, there's you know, and there's more I could go into. There's more inbuilt costs as well, but that's just a couple of them. But the other thing is about effectiveness, and you know, the big claim for doing this was that it was going to produce better outcomes, and it's you know, there is a little bit of evidence to suggest that some schools that are academised, some individual schools that are academised do better um, for their students. But, and that, you know, so if you look at it school by school, you might get one picture. So it's always possible if you're a politician who wants to justify your policy to go and find a school that has turned itself around, that's gone from being the pits to being stellar. But if you actually look across the system, it's the same kids who are still not getting what they ought to from their schooling, as has always been the case. And there's some, I think, some suggestion that now that with, you know, the pandemic, this has just got exponentially kind of worse. And I was saying to Kisara, I mean, I saw 
a headline a, a week ago um, in in a national paper saying that one in five schools had food banks. You just think like you know which schools they're going to be. You know those schools have uh, more to do. You know the schools that serve communities that are doing hard. They have to they have to do more, and they generally don't get nearly enough resourcing or support to actually do all this additional stuff that they they have to do. So that's I think that's the cut it is on both effectiveness and sort of efficiency grounds. Really, it just doesn't do what it claims to do. One of the things that um, I wanted to ask you about, Pat, that I know you talk about at length um, in the book is about transparency. And when you gave us that sort of amazing bite-sized history of the English education system, I think one of the notable things to me was that moment when schools had to stop being accountable to local authorities. That on top of pay scales, not needing to be in line with statutory Mm -hmm. guidance. And those two things just, it just makes my blood boil a little bit because you've got to this point where you've got people that are set up these schools that are paying themselves like thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds I think in the context of the the two things that you've just said about effectiveness and waste it just feels like a further sort of slap in the face and who's who are they accountable for like we can obviously talk about Ofsted there's just so much space for corruption as you say so no one's really concerned about the detail the headline is education is the key out of poverty education is the leveler the where i'm at my dad's just now in lewisham there's five schools i haven't been here in 10 years there's five schools within two minutes of each other that's insane five secondary schools when you start seeing the kind of size and like when you're talking about the kind of the financing and the, and the kind of money the waste these schools look really good the, the actual detail of it we don't really know or don't really care but it's the headline education is the key yeah i mean i think that's always been the case when people say you know you have to have a certain level of education now in order to get a job, you know, in the 21st mm-hmm. century because all the jobs are smart jobs and they're, you know, they require to be have certain levels of literacy and whatever. But, you know, the jobs have to be there in the first place. I mean, the level of mass education has risen. You know, kids stay at school much longer generally now than they, they did, you know, pre-Second World War. So there is, over time, you can see the level of mass education has risen at the same time actually as there's less jobs for people so schools can only do so much i mean the sorting and selecting means that there are always some people who are going to going to find education as a as a way out but it's kind of necessary but not sufficient you know to be well educated and i and there's some great research about this it's looking at people who work in um, a well-known company and she looks at at young people who are making hamburgers in two different locations in New York State, not New York City, but in New York State. And what she finds is that in the inner city black neighbourhood, the people flipping hamburgers have got much higher levels of education than the people flipping hamburgers in the affluent white neighbourhood. The people in the affluent white neighbourhood, you know, have this as a kind of temporary summer job and they get a bit of street cred and a bit of experience and then they go off through their family connections and whatever and get other jobs, whereas those kind of job and employment networks, the jobs are not there in the in the inner city black neighbourhoods to the same degree. And what tends to happen is people 
you know, according to this book, people have a kind of family economy, you know, so one person will have the job so another person can look after the kids and somebody else is looking after the building and keeping it going and whatever, that there's a different kind of family economy that goes on, a different sort of support system. But, I mean, she uses this as an example to say, to actually undercut that view of, of meritocracy, to say, actually, you can have a really good education, but if you don't have the opportunities available to you, you know, you can still end up, you know, in a in a kind of situation where you don't want to be. And I think that's also true here. You know, we've seen the kind of levels of education that people have to have for pretty basic jobs kind of increase really markedly. You know, I've been doing a study with a colleague, Becky, of young artists, 25 young artists. We've been following them for six years. And, you know, the the three or four working class young adults who've been like adults now who've, who've got themselves to art school, who still can't get a job, I mean, they're kind of basic comment. I mean, one of them's, you know, sofa surfing throughout the country and the other one's, another one of them's working on the checkout, you know, who says, I, I didn't need to go to art school to stand behind the checkout, you know, at the supermarket. I could have just done that anyway, um, you know, and does a bit of art in her spare time and doesn't know how to get into the art community at all. There's no opportunities being extended to her. And the young woman who's sofa surfing's given up altogether. So it's, but it's how you tell people that this is a kind of myth that education is a good thing, it's necessary, but it's not all that matters. The creation of more and more schools and pushing education, more people signing ed- education, the lack of jobs. So two things. Let me let me phrase it. Let me say three things I'm thinking about. So the first thing I'm thinking about is the myth of meritocracy whilst at the same time there being more schools being built and yeah and all that stuff then you've got the second thing I'm thinking about is the fact that there's hardly any jobs for these people that are getting more and more qualifications more GCSEs more A levels higher education blah blah blah. there's no there's not as enough jobs and the third thing I'm thinking about is the fact that with the free schools and the academies there is money to be made that money to be made by private individuals and companies, there's no obligation for them to deal with those two things that I've spoken about, to deal with the lack of jobs and to deal with meritocracy. All they need to do is keep building more schools or closing schools and building them and, and making money through privatisation. Touches on what Pat kind of kind of these two in her in her book about trust man what does that do to trust the experience you just kind of said to me is the kind of experience i had when i came at university i ended up working a lot of shit jobs i think the i think one of the first days i realized it was all of a, all of a bit of a myth is what i was in the job center reading Karl marx like i've just come out and i'm sitting here and i thought i'd be working in investment banking like all my friends but i'm sitting in the job center and i thought what is this man how symbolic it all was and so you start realizing how it's all a myth but that hit me hard. It, it kind of made me lose trust in this thing. So what's the point? What's the point? Even if I struggle as much as I can, I can't really participate in this system. So I start living according to how I see things. You start hustling, right? And I, I, you kind of live this kind of like, almost like kind of touching on what kind of the voice says, that kind of a double consciousness. So I end up trying to kind of 
participate in a system that I know doesn't really want me because it's rigged, it's corrupt and all this. So I, I develop a veneer to manoeuvre in that world. But that's not the real world for me. The real world is where I live, where I reside. T, you got that moment you're sat with reading marks in the job centre and then now I'm telling like you this. a load of people have profited from that, that feeling of alienation you're feeling right now. But the madness is, once you understand, right, once you clock it, you're thinking, I always knew that. I always know, you know the game. Depends on where you are in the structure, you understand right. the game, right? So I've always understood the game, but I was told the functional myth, right, to make me participate. So the functional myth is meritocracy or equality or whatever it will be, but it allows me to participate in this thing. Otherwise, why would I? I know it's rigged against me, right? So the functional myth motivates me to do whatever I need to do. And it feeds into statistics. It also feeds into a feeling of myself. I have to give myself motivation to do stuff. But the idea of trust and how it's eroded my trust in the system. And I will pass that on as it's intergenerational now. I will pass on this distrust to my kids, to my friends, and I will tell them about the system. But I also will tell them the same thing. I was also, also tell them the lie, which is ironic, right? So I was speaking to my uh, sister about her kids. And she has to tell them the lie that it's a meritocracy or the lie that all black people tell our kids, oh, you have to work twice as hard. Like, so we know this, the system's rigged because you say it to them, but you don't really go into any detail. You just say it's twice as hard. So get in there and get stuck in. You're going to be disillusioned and all those kind of things. And you won't want to bother, but it's okay. Just keep going. <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, the other the other choice in there is to, obviously, is to try and change it. And I, and I have to say, I think actually, you know, I paint a pretty grim, picture of the education system but of course I also say that there are loads of people really trying to trying their best in the system as it is and I think a lot of people go into actually into teaching and to social work into nursing because they actually do want to try and make a difference albeit small and it's often you know ironically can be the thing that makes the system work is is the commitment to actually not see people go hungry, to not see people be without treatment, whatever, you know, we, and that's the kind of argument Bourdieu made, of course, that that's how the public system's commitment, those who are kind of doing it hardest in the system. Um, but I guess I've got this, as I said, you know, I think this sort of agonistic view of politics that, you know, my, I, I grew up, I guess, in a, in a kind of, environment not being told that I had to work twice as hard I was actually told I couldn't go to university but you know that nobody gives you anything for nothing was very much the kind of view you know very kind of trade union oriented sort of household that that you know you had to actually go out there and it wasn't a question of working for it sometimes you actually had to go on strike or you certainly had to get organized you couldn't do it by yourself um so I guess there, you know, somewhere floating underneath this book and a lot of the other things that I do I, is really that kind of value of um, that I that I've grown up with. That that yeah, this is not never about just you as an individual. Um, it is in the sense that you do what you can where you can, but ultimately, changing stuff has got to happen at a much kind of bigger bigger level. And I think the problem that I see now is that, you know, it's, you know, I, I think I'm at a point where I don't understand my own enlightenment a kind of orientation, I, I guess, or ontology. I don't understand how people actually think that this government is doing well. 
particularly during the pandemic, you know, they're like, you can just see they're, they are completely open about, about, you know, giving public money to private interest. They, um, you know, you can just see individual acts, whether it's Boris Johnson's dad going off to France when everybody else is in lockdown, you know, that there's one rule for me and another, even another for everybody else, you know, and that, Somehow, I think if we feel we need the state to do something for us, that means it's we're we're basically children and we have to be treated to and talked to like children. We can't be trusted with the truth. We can't be told things. We have to be kind of hyped and um, yeah, just just decisions made and we can't be expected to understand them or have an opinion about them. It just seems to me as a kind of infantilization that goes on through contemporary politics. And I just don't understand how so many people buy it, quite frankly. Like I'm, I'm of an age or I'm just mystified. We're in complete agreement with you. I, like You managed to write so succinctly at the beginning of the book about the um, pandemic and how that relates to so much of what you talk about. The government's handling of the pandemic relates to so much about to what you talk about in the book. Um, and I wondered if you could maybe speak to, I don't know, a couple of things. So one of the things we've been talking about in my household at the moment is that obviously we have a we have this right wing government. We've got they run on a politics of populism. Like you see U turns almost on a weekly basis based on their view of public perceptions of things and. Obviously, that makes our lives really unstable. But for those of us that are trying to find ways of challenging the government when we don't have any kind of parliamentary majority, and sorry, um, Keir and the Labour Party, any kind of opposition, what kind of opportunities does this bring in for public sociologists, for example, like yourself, like people that are trying to put information out there and um, basically create inclusive political education. And I guess it would be really good to talk about, um, for this final part of the episode, a little bit about what happened with Marcus Rashford, like a little bit about what's happened with the government and the COVID contracts, but also thinking about how the vaccine rollout is possibly an exemplification of that sort of localised politics that you talk about in the book, like localised accountability can be good for schools. So can that be good for other other policies? <laughs> yeah, I think it's about, it's always about the balance of the local and the central, isn't it? Um, and how who gets to decide what, when and how. I mean, I guess the stuff about school food, I mean, I've got a particular bee in my bonnet about school food and um, I get, it comes from being a head teacher and it comes from working with kids who've been hungry and you know that that exists. It doesn't exist near, to nearly the same degree in Australia as it does here. Um, and in Australia, there are no school dinners. And when I, people always bring their lunch from home. So when I came to England, I was fascinated by school dinners, you know, because they were something I'd not, I'd not had. <laughs> I was particularly amused by the kind of romanticisation of, you know, rice pudding and wobbly marshmallows and other kinds of things that people had as well. But clearly, it was an anti-poverty measure originally. You know, it was clearly about, you know, in a Foucauldian sense, it was by politics, you know, it's about trying to keep the 
population healthy. One of the ways in which the state constructs its welfare budget, I mean, one of the things about the UK welfare budget is that it's got lots and lots of different bits to it rather than actually, you know, making a kind of Nordic decision to give everybody a decent amount of money and not bother with all these other bits like, you know, rental and tax credits and this and that and whatever else, which you can knock off and adjust and change what, you know, in a Nordic country generally in Norway, which is a very rich country, I mean, they actually give people a decent amount of money that so they can afford their rent and they can afford food themselves. They still do have school dinners. So I kind of got interested in school dinners. And then, of course, while I've been here, you know, in the eight years or so I've been here, we have the kind of phenomena of the kind of foodification of of school dinners. You know, it was all about, um, you know, was it going to be locally sourced? Was it nutrition? How terrible it was that kids were eating chips, you know, and the famous, you know, chef incident up north and with the mothers and the chips at the school gate, you know, a lot of which was, of course, very much a kind of anti-working-class women, you know, who were really struggling, you know, and um, stigmat- further of stigmatisation and versions of poverty porn going to look at, you know, what people ate. That's just kind of gone away now. Suddenly we're back to, you know, we actually understand that people are people are hungry in this country. And, you know, at the same time as we were actually talking about, you know, did this child know what a zucchini was or not, there were, at that time, you know, kids being admitted to hospital with rickets, you know, there were, there were, there was the growth of food banks, you know, we had food poverty at the same time as people were talking about school dinners as being part of this kind of, food, well, you know, what my colleague um, Lexi Earl calls foodie discourse, she's got a very nice book about it's her PhD, she was one of my PhD students, foodiness in school, in school food. And we've actually just written a book about guard, school gardening, um, which is still part of this mad interest in, in feeding and growing things in schools. Schools, I mean, in Australia, we call them disadvantaged schools. You know, that what schools communities made really poor do is they is they hand things out. So schools, even while the zucchini conversation was going on and kids were being admitted to hospital with rickets, there were schools giving kids breakfast. There were schools giving kids extra dinner, leftovers to take home, you know, giving kids extra helpings. That stuff was all going on, but nobody ever actually talked about it much. There's a bit of conversation about school breakfasts, um, but not a kind of a huge amount. But obviously, pandemic, then comes the problem of, well, what are you going to do about those kids now who are at home, who um, aren't getting their school dinners? And I think, like, overnight, I think, really, most of the disadvantaged schools that I'm aware of had actually organised a way to get kids food. And it was before the government did anything. There were people, you know, who'd, I mean, a local, actually a a big multi-academy trust here in Nottingham had organised um, a set of vouchers with the local supermarket um, and they were giving them out to all the kids who had school dinners. In other places, people were making packed lunches and they were carrying them, delivering them to kids, you know. So the, the schools had already started to do stuff but the, and then the government came in with its kind of voucher scheme, um, which they let to Edinred, this kind of French company, Edinred, who had kicked up a big fuss a few years ago about lack of transparency in 
contracting processes because I didn't get something. And so, but interestingly, there was no, not much process for this. Um, in fact, as, as far as I'm aware, it was, it's an obscure process. Who knows what process was used to give the contract to Edinburgh? But they took a while to gear up. And the first set of vouchers, the very first set of vouchers that they set up were for really posh supermarkets, you know, so like Marks and Spencer. Now, if you live in Skegness, there's always there's these markets, Marks and Sparks and Skegness, I don't know about it, but, you know, there's, a, there's little local shops. That's what there are. And there might be some of the very low, but there are some of the very low budget supermarket chains. So, you know, the... Whoever, whatever bright little spark in Westminster, in the DFE or in the minister's office, the minister's advisor, um, thought up this scheme, it had no clue about how it was that people actually lived and the kind of area that they lived. And the executive head of this particular academy in Nottingham told me, I and mean, he got to speak to the policy advisor, and they decided on 15 quid as the amount of money because the little bright spark said that's what you can get a good meal deal for. You know, so <laughs> like, yeah, you're in skegs and like, what's a meal deal? You know, like, so, and of course it didn't work. The website, you know, was dysfunctional to start with and, it, you know, people were getting vouchers that failed at the at the checkout that they can't take the the food away and people are being humiliated and crying they're coming to the school and they're crying there's school assistants you know like the the women who are part of the local community who were usually the non who were the admin staff in the school you know they're staying up at all hours of the night the head teacher told me to try and access the website because it's not functioning so they have to stay on it day and night to try and actually make sure they've got the vouchers that they can give to the families. That all got sorted out, you know, so that the website actually did function and they widened the scope of the things so that it it did actually cover the kinds of supermarkets that people could get to. But, you know, it was a mess to start with and the people that picked up the pieces were the schools, you know. It was the, it was, the schools were out there trying to cope with the, the I mean, in some cases, the, the humiliation or the hunger or the whatever that was going on together with the food banks. And, of course, the same thing happened over the over the summer when they decided that people shouldn't get vouchers. They should get actual food parcels, you know, and so we didn't trust. We actually don't trust these poor people to do the right thing. Is this why people game the system, right? I understand that this is, won't do anything, so I game the system for survival. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and yeah, I mean, if you make a particular rule, and you know, this is the only way that you can actually get something is to game it. Then, I mean, clearly that's what you're going to do, and I think that's, of course, why some schools have gamed the system as well. But you know, you can see how in these things you can see all these kind of social processes playing out: stigmatization of the poor, lack of trust, giving money to some company that's completely untested in the area because you know you think markets are great. Um, you know, coming up with some ridiculous idea because you're so far away from the way that people live, you've got no idea about that. You come up with a ridiculous kind of first go. At, at a at a national kind of system, you don't use the local intelligence in any way that's sensible. The same thing over summer: people not trusted to buy the right stuff, 
uh, a company given a headload of money off it in the first instance until they were shamed on social media. The woman who circulated the pictures of the pathetic amount of stuff she got that must have been about five quid instead of 15. You know, you can just see that almost everywhere you look, you can see the same thing. You can see the government, first of all, deny. That's the first thing. Deny. That's not our intention. That's not happening. You know, this is politically motivated. This is blah, blah, blah. And sometimes, you know, they actually have to recognise that there's a problem and they U-turn. But the first set of responses are always, you know, market. But can you extend the analysis of gaming? So, like I said, we established that gaming might occur at, at the lower end because of survival, right? So could that same analysis apply to the upper end? So, for example, Boris Johnson gets paid, what, 170 grand as prime minister, but he's gaming the system. So he realises that that's not enough for survival in his world, in inverted commas. So he games his own system, sets up charities to decorate his house. So he's gaming the system to survive how they survive. In relation, So it's a relative measure, if, if you will. Yeah, I think you can see that more more clearly, I think, in the kind of response to critique. And you can see it in the kind of massaging of government information. So it comes back to the kind of point that you made, Chantel, about lack of transparency. So there's a lot of misuse of statistics, a lot of misreporting of statistics, some things that are off the books. So some of the PFI costs that I talked about earlier are just off the books. Um, of just not reporting particular kinds of costs. Um, I think, you know, the National Audit Office has reprimanded people in education several times for misreporting statistics. Um, And I think Boris Johnson might have been reprimanded quite recently for massaging statistics as well. So, you know, the gaming for a populist government, I think um, a populist government's game a lot and I, that, that is their game, I think, in fact, is, is you know, they, they're propelled by these kinds of sets of quite religious beliefs. I mean, I think the belief in the market is a kind of, it's irrational, so it must be a kind of religious belief, it's faith, isn't it, that the market's going to be equitable and efficient because it clearly isn't. You just game in order to make, to make that kind of argument stick. Pat, that was absolutely amazing like I honestly feel like I've just been in the most like interesting conversation slash lecture like it was brilliant thank you so so much for joining us Pat um listeners thank you so much for joining us we'll obviously be back next week and patrons please head over to patreon now for an extra episode thanks very much everyone bye thank you for listening to surviving society with Chantal and Tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing.